Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. You are listening to 3CR's Spoken Word, and I am George O'Hara, and today we have a live recording of Jocelyn at the Night Heron in Footscray. So let's get right on with it and have a listen to Jocelyn. Hey everyone, um, just to, hello, <laughs> just to um, sort of put everyone at ease, I was thinking I'd do some, uh, like a, a little sort of introductory thing. It's from uh, a poet named Anne Carson. It only takes 15 seconds, so you won't be long. Um, it's called A Short Talk, and basically uh, I'm going to divide the room into two halves, maybe from where um, this gentleman and lady are sitting. And so this side will be... Um, side A, and that side over there, all of you, uh, will be side B. And uh, side A will say, uh, what will side A say? Side A will say, what a bargain, with an exclamation point. And side B will say, ah, what will side B say? Uh, hmm. I can't, it's on my ear. <laughs> Side B will say, let's buy it, with an exclamation point. So, can we try that? Side A. What a bargain. Side B. Okay, awesome. So, this is a short talk uh, on the sensation of aeroplane liftoff. <clears throat> well... You know, that might feel like true love rushing into my life with its, heart, with its arms raised, saying... Thank you. That was it. Um, here we go. The first poem is called um, The Emperor's Map, and it's based on a piece of artwork in the Ian Potter Gallery in, um, in uh, Melbourne University that you can go and observe if you'd like. Okay. Close your eyes. No, seriously, close them. Somewhere there's a map, petrified, patterned, dyspneic as a voice hacked with laughing and arrows. One half a code, the other a decision. Circles, rectangles, rich diamonds represented with actual rocks, watery felt to represent rivers, the sea, skies, and waterfalls. There's an equator that's just a name written on a field which is just a green piece of paper, a delta that inaugurates an inland empire and ends on a shoebox. To the east, if you designate how you yourself fa are facing the map as north, there's a series worth of geometry arranged like an ammonite or a shell or whatever golden ratio equivalent you would create in your mind. Go with that. Hmm. With attendant numbers, the largest is 23, the second 44, the central one 35. Titled like Henry VIII's beautiful flagship, capsizing, berthed outside Plymouth Harbor. Nothing in this map makes sense. The rocks donate and connotate nothing. 
Its confluations begin and end in floodplains, like a tongue. There are bridges that span sorrel and terminate like a shaggy dog story or bad pun. The emperor knew this, you think. She observed pleasure in eyes outraged at the attempt of deference. Spurs, crags, ridges, the more you peer at the map, reveal finger-imprinted human pebbles put on a tarpaulin, laid on an oak table by servants on a word. Did you close your eyes? That's it. The second one is called Staying in a Place slash England. And when there's a kind of pause, maybe punctuated by me slashing the air, that's a kind of, uh, indicates in the poem where a word is sort of split between two different meanings, not necessarily as a binary, more of a kind of polarity between the two. So, staying in a place, England, should be getting easier, harder. Halloween sheds deliberately, midnight Christmas decorations outside Salvo's Oxfam. Issues of the sun, fresh as shit. Windows stark with porcelain, blood-faced, tiny Regency yeoman slash sheriffs. Plus the music concrete of trash compactors, French building volunteers around Brighton Pavilion. Czech graffiti in the lanes. Cador, co, je, vi. The sea is small. Sunday, you mention, your white Australian friend, quiet on the porch sofa. I've never belonged here. The place I was living isn't there anymore. I always have to make time now for accidental travel. Something growing claws or wings staring at a star, possibly Arcturus, the brightest interstellar object visible from Earth, remembers the night train, Sydney to Melbourne, repeating, same as before, never not the same image of stars and light. That's it, thank you. <laughs> The next piece is um, slightly longer. It's um, at the University of Melbourne a while ago. There was a, um, uh, a, a gallery or like an exhibit on the Gothic, like Gothic fiction and Gothic art. And uh, these, and these pieces are supposed to be uh, descriptions of some of the art that was there and sort of serve as wall labels to the art as well. Hmm. I will kind of indicate from my position where they would have been in the actual room. And it's called Wall Labels for the Dark Imaginings Exhibit, Melbourne University. First, a press release. In the 18th century, Europe took a revolutionary shift in literary and artistic expression that became known as the Gothic. Nightmarish images of barbarity, oppression, and the supernatural were abstracted from an earlier medieval or Gothic age and fused with a romantic focus on imagination and emotion, resulting in works of frightening and thrilling originality. 
leading exponents of the Gothic set their creative works in dark and claustrophobic spaces or wild, threatening landscapes and infused them with melancholy, gloom, and fear. Also, I should note a content warning as this deals with uh, Western art and art history and so sort of represents and contains the whole list of phobias that inform that tradition. Uh, so here we go. One, a person flayed looms over a chipped Greek crater. Their gender is indeterminate. Their head is turned to the left. Their right hand, wrenched around 360 degrees like the bone, has snapped, but remains hanging in place like no big deal, like it's trying to disguise itself and the extent of the damage. This person hasn't been traditionally flayed. Instead of a simple underside of flesh, simple and or linear, different parts of the body have been individually peeled, revealing in places a cross-section of the whole, the layers rearranged. The chest musculature is gone, exposing the ribs and xiphoid, but the lungs are still covered with skin, as if skin could be taken for granted and swapped with vital organs. The legs are literally skeletal, except for the glutes and calf tendons. The face is the uncanniest, a skull at all points except the nose, which is normal. The eyes lidless, staring, real, and the lips full and slightly smiling. Over their right shoulder, a fire is burning. Two. I hadn't expected to see it. When I was 14 and flying back to Australia from the UK slash my grandmother's village, its houses dating back to the Tudors, their frames brittle, white, we'd have to stop off in Tokyo due to a malfunction. My dad contracted norovirus as soon, and as we waited for him to recover, my mother, sister, and I were free to explore. My mother's an artist, I say to people, but not like Jackson Pollock. You could make sacrifices with her art, read them like entrails. This is how, in Tokyo, she directed us to a gallery of Western art vacant on a Monday to see a Goya exhibit advertised with the engraving I'm looking at right now, right now, in the Bayou Library. A man, possibly Goya himself, unconscious on his desk, though he could be in tears. His legs are crossed. Behind him, bats, owls, and a lynx circle and glower, both toward the man himself and you, contemplating. El sueño de la razón produce monstruos. The sleep of reason produces monsters. Equally, perhaps unwitting, the dream of reason produces monsters. Goya's motto for the engraving goes, imagination abandoned by reason produces impossible monsters. United with her, she is the mother of the arts and the source of her wonders. Lynxes, in addition to monsters, were imagined as clairvoyants, able to see through solid objects. Sleeping and dreaming, hold a peculiarly central place in Western Enlightenment thought. You read the wall label, studying the plates behind glass. A man, by which I mean capital M, man, is afraid he's dreaming, that an evil demon dictates his beliefs and rational presuppositions, that he can't tell the difference between sleep and conscious life, endless waking up, never fully woken, endlessly dreaming. A fear of the inability to identify self-evident boundaries, 
For example, when does a boat, its planks progressively stripped and replaced, become something new? When does a color graduate into another, an absolute point delimitating the two like a cell membrane, he thinks? Who is lying when someone admits that they're lying? He shivers in the fear reason creates, colonizing its own monsters of assertion slash breakdown in the same breath. You may be reaching Jocelyn, you think, tracing Goya's lines and shades. Only through the pure contemplation which becomes absorbed entirely in the object of the ideas comprehended. Someone said this about art. I don't remember who, but I Google it afterwards. Three. The spadix resembles a wasp stinger, a black tooth, an upside-down spider's leg slash abdomen like Shelob in The Lord of the Rings, glistening against the petals mauve. There are mountains in the background, but indistinct. The flower takes up the whole image. The petals are soft, undulating like romantic-era curtains, the white-flecked leaves blowing in a presumed gust. According to Wikipedia, farmers first thought it was a little dragon hiding in the spathe. Comparing it with modern photos, the image has a skin-like quality. If there is a horror to its form as its illustrator expressed, it's in this, but more. The website calls it phallic, nature as profligate, indifferent to propriety slash ordering. But nature in this case appropriates as callously as people do. If she, the illustrator genders, offhandedly, full of himself, can adapt such traits, what's in a name? That which we call a rose would smell as sweet. A quick word about the poetry scene in Melbourne. Uh, there is so much on. Uh, I'm just going to say go to www.melbournespokenword.com forward slash events. And there's a bunch of, there's so many that are on. I am going to mention a few because this Friday is the Slamalama Ding Dong Grand Slam featuring uh, Tender McFly, and that's uh, starting at 7 o'clock at Howler. And you can go to melbournespokenword.com forward slash events for those uh, for the details and costings and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's Aspiring to Birdsong, which is a bit of a self-promotion uh, that I'll be performing at uh, with Steve Smart as part of the Bitter Disappointments. And that will also be featuring the Unanimous Quorum, Kylie Supsky with Reverse Butcher, and Chris Wen and Ashley Higgs. Now, this is the second performance. It's at the Loop Bar in the city. Uh, and that starts at 7.30 on Monday, this coming Monday, April 29th. So if you want to get along to that, it's going to be awesome. A recent one that I heard is uh, Dank's Divergent Dialect. Now, a lot of the poetry is in the northern, some western, and then inner city. This one's actually at the Post in St Kilda, which is an amazing pub. It's a wonderful room. I went there last week. Uh, ran by Hamish Danks-Brown, a.k.a. Dankster Down Under. Uh, so you can do, yeah, any sort of poetry in any language. It's very open. It's on the corner of Brighton Road and Inkerman Street. That starts at 7.30. Yeah, there's Merry Creek Tavern. There's uh, Poetry Spective at the Footscray Community Bar, or part of our Footscray Community Bar. Uh, there's, yeah, just go to melbournespokenword.com forward slash events. 
Uh, there's listings there. It's really well laid out. It'll give you all the details. They have, you know, the different prices, whether it has open mic, the type of event being competition. Is it features in an open mic? Is it a launch for something? Is it just an open mic? Is it a slam, which I just did to the desk? Uh, is it just features? Is it a fundraiser? Is it something that Melbourne Spoken Word presents as a panel or a workshop? Uh, but that's enough rambling from me. Let's get back to Jocelyn. Number four. Uh, number four. A pop-up book of Frankenstein in a glass case open on the night when the monster is animated. Victor is standing to the left, speechless. They are pallid, face like Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight. It's explicitly illustrated as stitched together poorly. If you observe the differences in skin luster from head to the torso, you may infer the number of bodies that went into their creation. You've never pictured the monster as such a composite being before, nor so much a mirror of Victor, despite the monster's famous, I ought to be thy angel, but instead am thy fallen angel statement. That's not enough skin to cover, there's not enough skin to cover their whole frame. The arms are taut around the biceps, their abs like crumpled newspaper or clothes that have shrunk in the wash. The monster lunges out at you, reader and spectator, stitched together, as you all are. But in the book, the monster comes to life almost imperceptibly. By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Here they are howling. They roar out of the page, eyes incandescent, and it almost seems justified Victor should abandon it. The Gothic is always self-consciously Gothic, you think. Sharp-edged, medieval castles, unnatural flora and fauna, a fallen angel. You remember studying Frankenstein back in year 11, the class comprising future roboticists, Elon Musk, Elon Musk fanboys, and would-be lawyers. When addressing the author, some refer to Mary Shelley as he, almost like Victor himself were the true inventor of the text, as if the book itself were another assemblage, limbs that might never fit together properly. H.P. Lovecraft would later write, someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful position therein that we shall enter, either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Lovecraft would take this and make a religion where God is replaced by a great border wall, segregation a metaphysical need. You know that neo-reactionaries online style themselves as part of a dark enlightenment. Cthulhu, Lovecraft's tentacle-faced oracle of the return of the gods, as a metaphor for the horror of modernity. Recently, you've seen trailers for the latest Jurassic Park movie, set around a reconstruction-era mansion owned by a mysterious, rich, handsome businessman with a dark secret. A scientist who created the dinosaurs in the first movie is one of the antagonists, one who admitted in the previous installment that nothing that we do in Jurassic World is natural. We have always filled gaps in the genome with the DNA of other animals. You didn't ask for reality. To which, to which this person, the owner, says, I never asked for a monster. To which they reply, monster is a relative term. To a cat, to a canary, a cat is a monster. The recent film has been described as a gothic horror departure for the franchise. In it, they create a hybrid dinosaur, a combination of all the predatory traits of carnivores introduced, 
A shot from the trailer shows it slouching towards the protagonists through a dark vent, its outline moving in and out of shadow in time to a warning light. Its movements are irregular. In the dark, it seems to have several bodies at once. The audience shudders. Five, near the exit, two other images I've seen before. An etching of L'Hôtel de la Marat, Paris, by Charles Merillon. The sky is black and white. The needle marks in the plate, at least for the neoclassical facade depicted, are razor fine. On the right hand of the image, strange fish-like creatures swim through the air, as if the upper atmosphere were the undercurrents of a lake. The second one is a watercolor of Edgar Allan Poe inserted into the raven as its narrator. This insertion, possibly experiencing his poem's claustrophobia firsthand, seems to feed into the image's sadness and horror. Researching the two, utter coincidence, I found a poem by Marian Janacek based on the exact two images. And it's called Poe and the Admiralty Paris. The sky was a realistic black, white. Indoors, the blue of his body read the raven out loud, seeping into the divan frames like a season of slow floods, insinu insulating water as the accoutrements and decor of everything float, his cold shoes oblivious, his eyes closed as he sighs. Outside, their arrival was equally realistic, the skin of the flying fish opalescent, the horses gushing through troposphere, laying siege to the Admiralty were perfectly anatomically correct. And that's it. That's it. How am I going for time? That's okay. I can do a, hmm, this is a kind of a sonnet sequence. It'll be rather relatively quick. It's called uh, Lady M. There is duplicity in an excuse. What will they say? I had a kid who died, too undersexed, a chuckle, a deep implied abuse that bad's correct. Every shit ruse the writers give us. When I was a child, roaming, glam, thistle, sorrel-footed, sure, I thought of Clytemnestra, wild in her, her own happiness, and then uprooted. I came here all alone when it was over. Cordor smoke leaving lungs, the mountains new and susurrated in the things we rediscover. When their names collapse, the plots you all outgrow. I breathe the mountains out through my skin with an inadvertent sigh. Begin again. Actually, I'll just, I'll finish on that one. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for this week. I did want to mention uh, one more event. On May 17th at Hares and Hyenas in Fitzroy, we have uh, special guest David Stavanger from Queensland and Anaya Walwich uh, performing. Uh, they're two great Australian performance poets. And yeah, he's coming down from Brisbane, from originally from Queensland, who I interviewed last month. And Anaya Walwich is coming from unknown, according to the website, uh, but not Brisbane, somewhere in Melbourne. But they're both incredible. Uh, and you should come along. 
uh, it'll be wonderful. David is also doing a workshop. Uh, and if you go to the website www.melbournepoetsunion.com, uh, there'll be an upcoming events for 2019 link. And it's just a page of information where it tells you all about um, both David and Anya and their past and the events that they have coming up. Uh, so that's it for me. Uh, until next time, this is George O'Hara for 3CR's Spoken Word.